I told my uh, Sabbath school class that I was going to do a little illustration to open up the sermon with. And one of them said, are you trying to be like Pastor Fred? So, no, he is the prop master, man. I'm just, I'm just learning from him. So, um, so this is a box I have here. And this is my box. You cannot have this box. I have worked hard to make this box white and pure. This box uh, represents everything that I, I, I love about my life. Uh, it's a big box. Um, it's, a, it's a box that opens and closes. I love that about this box. I could put it's sturdy, put a lot of things in this box. And um, I'm sure you guys have all heard, uh, I put all kinds of things in this box. I'll put my keys in this box, I'll put my phone in this box, which happens to be most of my life on my phone. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, I, I put uh, my glasses in this box. I put all kinds of things in my box here. Uh, and then, of course, one of the things that I remembered learning is that if I put too many things in this box, I won't have room for God. Have you guys ever seen that illustration with the jar, right? You put too many things, there's no place for God. So uh, one of the things I learned is I want to put God first in my box. So this is a little imagination here. This is God. And, and here's the thing about God. I have to kind of squish him a little bit, you know, and put him in there, and then close the box, you know. And that should work pretty good, except for, <laughs> except for God doesn't want to stay in the box. And uh, sorry, this is my box. I have to get it. And so, um, so why am I doing this? Because this is my box, but I think many of you have your own box in which you're trying to fit God in the box. And you know that what happens is that it doesn't work, right? See, God does not fit in the box, but this is what we do all the time. And this sermon today is a story about somebody that got upset because he wanted to fit God in his box, and God said, I don't fit in there. Are you with me? We've been doing our series called By Faith. And we are now at the verse that says these words, by, it was by faith, catch this, it was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. Can I hear an amen on that? In other words, it was what he believed, not what he brought, that made the difference. It was by faith, it says. Now, if you remember correctly, we defined faith as 
The apostle in Hebrews defined that he said, now faith, this faith that Abel had that allowed him to offer a more excellent sacrifice by faith. Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And if if you don't mind, I could say this. This is what Abel was commended for. Does that make sense? By faith. So what hope did he have confidence in? What evidence made him sure of what he did not see? Now, most of you have heard the story of Cain and Abel. In fact, if some of you have never read the Bible, you probably have heard about Cain and Abel somewhere. But in case you haven't, let's go back to that story for a moment. It's found in the book of Genesis. I want to warn you a little bit today. I'm going to try to do the best I can to make this as simple as possible. But this is quite deep. Is that okay? Are you okay with a little depth today? There's three of you are okay. I'm going to accept that as... As a definite then, okay? (laughs) Don't know what else to do. All right, so let's go to Genesis 3, and it starts off with this amazing story. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And as you study the Bible more, as you read more, you begin to realize that this serpent really was a representation of who? Satan, our enemy, the devil, the rebel. And he's been kicked out of heaven, and he comes to earth, and he decides, I'm going to just destroy humans. Because God loves humans. So I'm going to get rid of humans. And so the first thing he does, he decides to tempt Adam and Eve. And he says it, he starts off by saying this. Now, did God really say you may not eat from any tree in the garden? There is an insinuation here. And the insinuation within that question is God is holding out on you. Do you catch it? God is holding out. He doesn't want you to have fun. He doesn't want you to have any joy. If you think about it, there sure is a lot of things God won't let you do. Did he actually say you cannot eat from any of the trees? You can't cuss. You can't smoke. You can't drink. You can't gamble. I mean, there's sure a lot of things you can't do as a believer. That's the insinuation that he was making to Eve. I kind of like the answer that Eve gives him. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. In other words, what she was saying is, you're insinuating that I can't touch any of the trees, but actually it's not about how many trees I cannot touch. It's just about one tree. There's so much more that God wants, there's a whole lot more that God wants us to do and be able to do than there is that we can't do. And we concentrate, for some reason, I guess because we're self-centered, we concentrate on what we cannot do. When God is saying, listen, this is all you can do. Just stay away from this because this is going to hurt you. And the enemy was trying to turn it around. Are you following this? Are you with me? 
So, of course, he continues to talk with her, and he's very crafty and sly, and he's able to convince her. And, and, and the next uh, in a little bit, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, And pleasing to the eye. And desirable for gaining wisdom. Good for food. Pleasing to the eye. Desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she what? Ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized that they were naked. So the Bible says they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now I want you to catch this in this passage. They were naked before, but now they realize it. They were naked before, but now they're ashamed. Sin introduces a sinister element of shame and guilt. The Bible says their eyes were opened. What they see and know is actually changed at this moment from the higher reality. So even though their eyes were open, now they're seeing them from a corrupt perspective. And now something has to happen. Something called faith has to be introduced. Something has to happen so that we won't get bogged down with this. We won't lose everything because of this mistake. And so the first thing they do is they sow fig leaves and then they go hide. And this is what sin does to us. It is, if you feel insecure right now, if you feel ashamed, if you feel any level of, of uh, embarrassment, it's all because of one thing we call sin. When we look in the mirror and say, man, I'm just getting really big here. Or man, I need to shave. Oh, man, I'm like, my, hand, my arms are sagging. Like, what is going on? That is called shame. And it bothers us because of something called sin. And so what do we do? We're really good at this. We cover it up. You get some fig leaves here, some fig leaves here, some fig leaves here. I wonder how many fig leaves they used, you know what I mean? Because they had to sew them to, I don't even know how they did that. <clears throat> and so God says, you must hold on to the surety of what you cannot see. Now with eyes open, you must learn to have confidence in hope. And so what does he do? And this is where it gets really interesting. It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Did you catch that? Now, this is really kind of interesting here. It is as if God's saying, look, you know, look, I like the fig leaves. Not bad. 
Like the way you sewed them and everything, but that's not what I want you to wear. And if you think about it, it says that God made garments of skin. Where did he get that from? Which means that God had to be the first one to kill his creation, to set up this perpetual object lesson for Adam and Eve. Are you following me? In other words, God had to say, look, I want you to see this right now. I want you to see what your rebellion has done. And I want you to do this regularly from now on. And he kills a lamb, we believe, because that is what ends up happening through the Jewish economy is that they begin to sacrifice his lamb. And he kills this lamb and he says, okay, now look at this. And now for the first time ever they see blood. I mean, this is not good. And then he says, now look, we're going to take this skin and, you know, look, I mean, obviously God's a great designer. I don't know what he did with it. But while the tragedy of distrust and rebellion was still fresh, God is able to promise hope. And he's doing it through this intense object lesson, this emotionally charged, that's designed to help them remember and understand the eternal sacrifice that one day will be made. In fact, he had just told them, look, one day someone will come that's going to take care of all this. And the way you're going to remember this is if you sacrifice a lamb to me from this point on. This was not because God wanted some kind of way to to be appeased. This was totally because he wanted man and woman to understand and remember forever that the only way that we can experience righteousness is not through the fig leaves that we put together or the boxes that we try to put God in, but only through the blood of the Lamb. Some years ago, I shared this with you. It is a picture of the ancient Chinese word, the word righteousness. Uh, Many of you are new here and you probably did not see it, so I want to share it with you. There's two things that I'm going to show you today that some of the folks here have seen before because I think they matter. This is the word righteousness in the ancient Chinese language. Now, it's interesting, uh, there was a, there's a book called Mysteries Confucius Couldn't Solve. And one of the things about the ancient Chinese language is that there were, there's a lot of allusion to biblical truths. For example, the word for ship in the ancient Chinese language is eight people in a boat. And if you know your Bible, you say, oh yeah, that makes sense. And the word for warn, like warning somebody, is don't take from the tree. (laughs) And here's the word for righteousness. Are you ready? The word for righteousness is made up of two words. The first word is me. 
That's the bottom part. Can you see it? The bottom part. That's me. And me is made up of a couple of words. Me is made up of my hand holding a knife. This is important. Are you following me? I'm trying to make it as easy as possible with pictures. So me, in the ancient Chinese language, is me holding a, a, a knife. That's me. Her. I don't know where we're going to get righteousness from here, but let's see. But me holding a knife has got something on top of it. So this is me holding a knife, but on top of it there's another one. Have you noticed that? And that one is lamb. The ancient Chinese language says that the word for righteousness is the lamb over me. The only way that we can ever have the type of righteousness that God wants us to have, the kind of righteousness that makes us safe to be saved, is not by what we do. This is how simple this is. It is by what God did. When Jesus came and died on the cross for us, he was the lamb. We sang about it. That was sacrificed. Once and for all. And this is the reason why we don't sacrifice lambs anymore. Now, I'm not sure how well Adam and Eve understood all this. And that's why it was more than just pictures for them. They actually had to use a knife in their hand to kill the lamb and to cover themselves with that skin. And they had to do this repeatedly so that they would remember. Now the Bible says, Adam made love to his wife, Eve. And she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Now you must understand something that is not said here, but that is so important. Do you remember what I said to you about before, what God had promised them that a Messiah would come, a Savior would come, somebody would come? I believe that as soon as Eve had this baby, she thought, this is him. The Messiah. This is what God promised. Look, it's here. She had no idea that she would have to wait thousands of years before the realization of that amazing, amazing prophecy. It says, she said, with the help of the Lord, thank goodness that she recognizes that, I've brought forth a man, a little one. <laughs> and then later she gave birth to his brother Abel. And so now you have Cain and Abel. How many of you have brothers or sisters? Raise your hand. Some of you are like, yeah, I got one. I got four, and I'm the middle child. I got to tell you, man, the competition was rampant. I mean, we, we were always trying to outdo each other. My dad would come home once a year, and one of the things that my mom would have us do is, is get, her, get my dad cards. And I'd always be, like, looking for the best card for my dad. 
But my brothers, they were older than me and they were smarter than me. My two older brothers, of course. And they always somehow got a card that was just the right card. And my dad always like, oh, this is great. This. And then, then he'd come to my card. Maybe he was tired. I don't know. By the third card. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's nice, Serge. Thank you. But one day, <laughs> one day I got him a card that had the picture of the Napoli soccer team on it. Oh, yeah, man. And it was, it was a year that they were doing well and everything. And I wrote in the card. And my dad, like, looked at Claudio's card and was like, oh, this is so nice. He looked at Sal's card and he was like, oh, man, great job. I can't believe you wrote in this. And then he looked at my card and he was like, whoa, where did you get this? Yes. So the Bible says that Abel, as he got older, became a shepherd. He kept flocks. And Cain worked the soil, which means he was a what? A farmer. Now, this is where it gets really tough for us as humans to fully grasp the beauty of all this. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Why? Well, he's a farmer. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions. I guess God was doing keto that day. I don't know. <laughs> fat portions from some of the firstborn of, the, of his flocks. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Cain is like saying, look, man, like I'm giving you my best. I am giving you my best fruits, my best vegetables. I've, I've cleaned them really good. I mean, I am going to offer you the best that I have. And Abel says, I've got this little lamb. And the Bible tells us that God appreciated Abel's gift, but did not Cain's gift. And if you're like me, the first time I read this story, I kept thinking, that is so wrong. I mean, Cain is really doing the best that he can, isn't he? I mean, he's given his best. These were not like cheap vegetables, man. This wasn't kale, you know. This was like good stuff. This wasn't even tofu. I'm not even sure what that was, where that came from. But this was like, you know, beautiful, beautiful apples and, 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 and oranges and, 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 and wonderful broccoli. And it was just wonderful. This was great. This was their best. But here was the problem. The problem was that it wasn't what God asked for. And it wasn't what God asked for not because he didn't appreciate Cain doing all that work, it wasn't what God asked for because what Cain offered did not represent the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In other words, he missed the point. He was trying to fit God in his box. Look, this is my box. This is the best box ever. Come on, God. And God was like, you don't get it. 
It's not about the box. At the end of the day, it's not even about the lamb. It's about you doing what I ask you to do because it represents the Messiah that is coming because that is going to be the only thing that's going to save you. Are you able to follow me on this? Good, because it's going to get a little bit more intense here. But I'm keeping it short today for that reason. So the Bible says it was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain. Are you catching this now? It wasn't that it was because he was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. No, this was faith. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man, lamb over me. Are you catching this? And God showed his approval of his gift. And although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. Meaning what? Meaning that that ability to be able to give God what he asked for because what he asked for was the only thing that can really save us speaks to us till this day. And yet today, after all these millennials, after all these years and years and years and centuries and all this time that's gone by, there are people in this room right now that still are wondering why their box is not good enough. And it's not that God doesn't like my box. He loves my box. But my box will never save me. My box, God will never fit in that box. Now, we don't longer sacrifice lambs today. Why? Well, because Jesus came 2,000 years ago, died on the cross, and he became the, what, what those lambs pointed to. And therefore, we don't have to do that anymore. But does that mean that we no longer have to have the faith that Abel had? Does that mean we no longer have to have the faith that Abraham had? Does that mean we no longer have to have the faith that Noah had, that all these people had? No, it does not. In fact, David says this, and it's pretty powerful. David the psalmist, he was a guy that sang, and I'm sure he sang this. I don't know how he sang it. Don't ask me to sing it. I have no idea. But he says these words in Psalm 40. He says, sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. Like at the end of the day, it's not about the sacrifices. And then he says, my ears you have opened, burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. But wait a minute, we just talked about that. He says, then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. In other words, what David was saying is, look, what you want more than anything else is that I act as if your law is etched in my heart. And the only way that your law can be etched in my heart is if I allow Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, to be my righteousness. Now, there's an interesting line there that I've highlighted in green. It says, my ears you have opened. And a lot of theologians uh, mistake this line. In fact, many Bibles read this all wrong. A lot of Bibles write as if it's saying, you have opened my ears to understanding. You've helped me to know you better. 
That's not what David was saying. The word open there in the Hebrew is the word kara. And kara means to dig. Kara means to bore a hole, to make a hole in something. What David was saying is, you've put a hole in my ear. Well, that's weird. I could see why theologians think he's saying, uh, you must be saying you've opened my ear so that I can understand. That is not what David was saying. David was actually referring to something that happened back in Exodus. And it had to do with the laws of slaves. And the law was that if you had a slave, a servant, that was owed to you because maybe it was something he did and he owed you money and now he becomes your slave. He was only your slave for seven years. On the seventh year, he would go free. Unless he would go to the master and say, uh, Dad, uh, I mean master, um, my time is almost up. But I like it here. When I first started, I didn't think I did, but I, I love this. I love your family. I love the way you treat me. I mean, I feel more like a son than a servant. And I'd like to ask you something according to the law. And that is, could I be your servant forever? And the master was like, son, uh, I mean servant. <laughs> Are you sure? Like, the this would, nothing would make me happier. And they make their way to the judges, and they get to the judges, and the judges, and he explains everything to the judges, and the judges are going, I, I, are you sure about this? Is anybody coercing you? No, 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 I really want to do this. I, okay. And then they take him back to the house of the master, and they put his ear against the doorpost. Read about this, Exodus 21. They put his ear against the doorpost. They put an awl inside the, the ear and the hammer, and then poof. They make a big hole in the ear. And then they take the all out. Ouch, yes, absolutely. And then they put a big earring in his ear. I used to preach a sermon called, Are You Wearing Your Earrings? I love to do that in Adventist churches especially. <laughs> and so he's got this earring in his ear. And everybody in the camp knew two things. Number one, that this guy was a servant forever. No getting out of that. And number two, that he was so because he wanted to be so. Because he considered himself more of a son than a slave. Is the law written in your heart? Do you have the same attitude that David? This is what David is saying. I want to be like that for God. Are you, have you come to the point where you've said, okay, you know what, God? I'm yours forever. There's some of you in this room right now that have been coming for a long, long time, and you have yet to say, God, I am yours forever. And there is no better time like the present. Can I just be honest with you? Now, let's finish with this. The apostle in the book of Hebrews says something really interesting. He quotes David 
But he says that it wasn't David who said it, it was Jesus who said it. You know, these apostles really had a lot of license those days. And he says almost word for word, he says, so when Jesus came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering were not what you wanted, but instead a body you prepared for me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings were not what you pleased you. Then I said, so I have come to do your will, God, as it is inscribed of me in the scroll of your books. Almost word for word. Have you noticed that? But the, the apostle to he, that wrote the book of Hebrews actually says, this is not David, this is Jesus. Except for one thing, there was one line that's totally different. And again, it's highlighted. David says, my ear you have pierced. But Jesus says, instead, a body you have prepared for me. In other words, what the apostle was saying is that when Jesus came to the earth and he became our servant... It wasn't just his ear that was pierced. It was his hands. It was his feet. It was his side. And he did all that to forever, ever serve us. And it was only until we understand this that we will understand what righteousness is. You can never have enough fig leaves. You can never have a pretty enough box. Only Jesus, the Lamb of God, who prepared his body for him, the, the, the Lamb of God that bled on the cross and was pierced for our iniquities, can ever save us and give us righteousness. Period. And if for some reason this is so hard for us to understand, I apologize for some of you guys who have heard this story before, but it's so apropos for this right now that I, I need to show it to you guys again, and some of you have never seen it, so I, it's so powerful. It is the best, best understanding of what this is all about that I've ever had. When I came out of college, I was a student teacher in an elementary school. First and second grade, great kids, happy kids, loving kids. I got to learn how to play guitar there. I got to learn how to teach. I got to learn about the ins and outs of children and uh, what makes them tick and what doesn't. And I got to learn a lot about myself and my problems. <laughs> and I had to, like, figure it all out. And six months went by so fast. I mean, it was such an amazing experience. And I remember the last day I went there, uh, unbeknownst to me, I walk into the classroom, and all of a sudden I hear, surprise! And it's these first and second graders, and the teacher, she's playing the guitar, and they're all singing, and there is like streamers everywhere, and there's confetti everywhere, and there's like what looked like cupcakes that the kids made everywhere. And it was like this amazing party. And I'm like, whoa, is this for me? Oh, yeah, Pastor, uh, uh, Mr. Menente, Mr. Menente, yeah, you know. And I was like, wow, it's my last day. They're throwing me a party. And now we're just having a great time. And out of the corner of my eyes, I noticed there was one child. And she was sitting at her desk and she was crying. Her name was Whitney. I mean, this is like 40 years ago. And in all this time, I've yet to hear anything better than this. And I walked over to her, 
And I said, Whitney, what's the matter? She goes, Mr. Manette, I don't want you to leave. Oh. Come on, this is like, oh. And I said, oh, Whitney, I don't want to leave either. But I'll be back. I'll visit. And then I noticed she was drawing something. I used to carry the drawing with me all the time uh, when I would do this talk, but it's gotten so wrinkled and torn that that I just keep it at home now because it's so precious to me. But would you like to see a a picture of it? So this is what she drew. Yeah, it's another ah moment, right? And I remember seeing that picture, and I want to say this. I was brand new as a teacher, so... For those of you who are teachers, forgive me. This is a mistake I did as a brand new teacher. You know, I didn't know. I learned from then, and I never did it since then. But here's what I did. I decided that I would be safe to be able to guess what this picture was. And I said, Whitney, what a beautiful picture of Jesus on Calvary and the thief on the cross. And I love you across the sky, and you signed it. And she goes, no, Mr. Marente, that's not what it is. And I remember thinking, How, what do you mean? And then she said these words. I need you to remember this. She said, that is Jesus on the cross. You see the little guy there, right? That's Jesus. But you notice the other cross is empty. She said, that's your cross. But you're not there because Jesus is there. You're not there because Jesus is there. You're not there. You are not there because Jesus is there. I said, excuse me one second. But I'll be right back. I went into the bathroom and I cried like a baby because I have not heard from that moment since or before that, this concept of Christ's righteousness in our behalf, like this little kid did, this, this second grader, Whitney, blew my mind. I came back, and she said, where'd you go? I said, I had to go to the bathroom. I'm sorry. She goes, I drew it for you, and I took it and put it next to my heart, And I said, I will keep this forever. And I have. And everywhere I go, every I I just a couple of weeks ago was down in Tennessee talking to a bunch of pastors. You want to see a bunch of pastors crying? (laughs) It was beautiful. I'll do it just for that sometimes. (laughs) I told this story, and they're all just crying. Some of these people that are pastors that 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 still are, are struggling with their own box still struggling with their own elaborated fig leaves, still struggling with all this stuff, and they're saying, okay, what are we going to do? How are we going to get this? How is this going to work? And I'm telling you right now, this is, is, is simple but profound. It's simple but difficult because we are so self-centered and we want to do it ourselves, but trust me on this. Let Jesus do his thing and accept his sacrifice. On your behalf. You're not there because Jesus is there. We don't 
have to keep breaking his body anymore. And we are told that one day the King of Kings will return and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Amen? Amen. Holy Father, thank you for providing a way for us to be reconnected to you. And although I was not personally there on that fateful day when my father and my mother ate of the fruit, I ask forgiveness for that rebellion, Lord. And I accept the sacrifice of the Lamb of God on my behalf. And I thank you so much for providing it for me and for everyone in this room if they should only choose. May we experience friendship for eternity. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.